Today's scripture reading is in Acts chapter 27, verses 13 through 44. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempests laid on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bows stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered, the, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of God. Amen. 
bothers me for some reason. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. I know there are some uh, new faces in the, in the crowd today. Uh, if, if you're here for the first time, could you just raise your hand for me? Raise your hand if first time. All right, welcoming team, please take note. We have some newcomers here. All right, glad to see you, and I hope you can stick around and get to know us a little more. Uh, it's uh, really hard to believe that we're not only nearing the end of the year, but we're also nearing the end of our series in the book of Acts, all right? And uh, I said this before, but that makes me kind of sad. <laughs> uh, today we're in chapter 27, and the title of the message is Trusting God in the Midst of Life's Storms. So to make it easier for you to follow, I've broken down the message in the following three parts. Part one, the purpose of storms. Part two, our posture in the face of storms. And part three, God's presence in the midst of storms. Okay, so purpose, posture, and presence. Uh, in our story today, the Apostle Paul had to navigate through a literal storm, but God is going to use this story today to teach us how we are called to trust in him in the midst of the various storms of life that we are called to experience day by day. So part one, the purpose of life storms. Let me briefly remind you uh, what happened leading up to this chapter. Okay, in our last message, uh, Paul stood before Governor Festus and King Agrippa, remember the Jewish king, and he stood before other prominent men of the city because King Agrippa wanted to, we said, flex his muscles in front of the rich and powerful of his day, and Governor Festus wanted this Jewish king, who was also a pawn of Rome, to assist him in drafting a letter to Caesar that would justify bringing Paul's case before the higher court. But after hearing Paul's testimony, what they concluded was this. This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That's how chapter 26 ended. And today's chapter begins with Paul finally heading to Rome. Right? He is Rome-bound, and that was what Paul was hoping for. Not because he thought that things would get better for him in Rome, but because God had made it clear to him earlier that his purpose for Paul was for him to testify in Rome for God's sake. Acts chapter 23, verse 11 said this, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And so, of course, Paul, he took that to heart, and he was glad that he was now Rome-bound. He was faithfully walking in humble obedience to God's will. And that is a great thing. And so you would think that God would at least give this apostle, this dear servant, safe and smooth passage to Rome. But no, that is not the case at all. Surprisingly, Paul and the 276 men on board are met by a terrible storm called the Northeaster. It was basically a, a hurricane that caused them to be driven by the winds for 14 days without any sight of sun or star. And how can you navigate a ship 
in that ancient culture without a vision of the sky. You couldn't. They were lost at sea. Now, most Christians, they don't have a problem when bad things happen to disobedient and unfaithful people. But, you know, how do we respond when bad things happen to people who are faithfully walking in obedience to the Lord, right, like the Apostle Paul? How does your heart respond to that? You know, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's really hard not to see a contrast between Paul's stormy experience here, as we read, and that of Jonah's in the Old Testament. You see, in Jonah's story, God has sent a storm of wrath because of Jonah's willful and blatant disobedience. God told him to go to Nineveh, but he went exactly in the opposite direction. So, of course, he should be caught in a storm and swallowed up by a, a nasty sea monster, right? I mean, I've never heard anyone get upset over what happened to Jonah. But Paul's story is different. Paul is obediently walking in the path of God's will, and yet God sends a terrible storm. Why? Why does God do this? Most Christians will not admit it, but they have a problem with the God who would allow such a thing. We know this because we ourselves also grow bitter toward God when we're called to endure through difficult storms in life. You know, we privately think to ourselves, what did I do to deserve this treatment? Are you serious, God? You can't give me a break from these crushing waves that are tormenting me every day? That is often our heart's response to trouble, is it not? So whenever you feel like you're being mistreated by God, it's helpful to remember the story of Job. Remember that in that story, Satan asked permission from God to bring some calamity upon Job, claiming that Job is only righteous because his life is so easy and blessed, right? He's such a goody-two-shoe because you blessed him so much. And so Satan wanted to prove that once the blessing of wealth and the blessing of children were taken away from Job, that Job would turn against God. So how does the story unfold? A metaphorical storm descends upon Job, and all of his property gets destroyed, and all of his ten children, right? Imagine that. Ten children get murdered by foreigners, taken away just like that. But it says that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job chapter 1, verse 22. Honestly, would any of us still choose to worship God If this kind of thing ever happened to us, are we not tempted to turn against God for much, much smaller reasons? Surprisingly with Job, God allows Satan to bring even more harm against him. And what he takes away next is a blessing of personal health. How are you doing with your health? Painful sores everywhere from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
And the picture of Job scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery is given to us. With so much pain. The reason I share this with you is to make the point that it doesn't matter who you are or what your level of obedience is like before the Lord. We will all face storms of various kinds. These storms are inevitable. Now, of course, some are called to endure through greater storms, but every person without exception will face storms. Why? And most of you know the answer already. You just need to believe what God says when he gives you the answer. You just have to trust him. We rejoice in our sufferings, God's word says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. And in James, we also read, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know, don't you, Christian, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, we are told, over and over again in God's word. Imagine how spiritually complacent we would all become if there were no storms for us to navigate through in this life. What kind of person would you become? without any storm. Brothers and sisters, God has a purpose for the storms he sends our way. And if you know that his purpose is good, then, brothers and sisters, please don't allow your hearts to grow hardened, but rather let the various storms that God appoints in your life do the work of changing you for the better. Like Job, who by the end of the story became much more humble before his God. And in that story, you know, Satan thought that he was going to win. But in the end, turns out he was just a pawn in God's hand. He helped God write a book that would help millions upon millions of people endure through their own trials and sufferings throughout human history. Part two, our posture in the face of life storms. As I said earlier, the way Paul responds to this literal storm in today's story can teach us how we ought to respond to the various storms of life that we're called to face. So listen carefully. It's really important. In order for you to properly survive any storm that comes your way, there are two very important truths that you need to learn how to hold together in tension. Oftentimes, a Christian life is holding what seems to be two very difficult truths that might apparently contradict each other, to hold these two things in tension. The first truth is that God is absolutely sovereign over every storm. Whatever storm you just came out of, 
or whatever storm you're in right now, and if you're not in one right now, as Pastor David prayed earlier, I guarantee you that one is coming ahead. One is coming. But wherever you are in relation to the storm, you need to realize that your sovereign God appointed that storm for you according to his divine wisdom. It's not an accident. It was God who personally designed that storm for you so that his sanctifying grace could be at work in your heart. And if you're able to believe that, then your soul will be able to find rest in the Lord in the midst of the storm. Because you'll no longer view the crashing waves that are causing you so much pain as a curse against you, but rather as a means of God's grace and ultimately as an expression of God's love for you, right? as waves of God's mercy, waves of love. The second truth is that we are absolutely responsible in how we respond to the storms of life. In other words, how you respond to the trials and tribulations in your life, they matter. The fact that God is sovereign and 100% in control does not mean that your actions are inconsequential. They matter. And I know that may sound like a contradiction because it's really easy for us to conclude that if God is absolutely sovereign and in control of everything, and if no one can thwart his plans and purposes because he's God and no one can contend against his will, then why should I bother to do anything is the way we commonly reason. You know, why should I pray if God is sovereign? Why should I evangelize? Why should I go on missions? Why should I even vote? Why should I even try to survive a storm if God says he's going to save us all? Do our cho choices really matter even if God is in, in control? And the answer is a resounding yes. Look at how these two ideas play out in Paul's example in our story today. Let me highlight a couple. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you so Paul is trying to give assurance to all the men in the boat, hey, we, we're going to be okay. You know why? Because God told me. Right? An angel of the Lord appeared to me, and you know what? He, he promised to me a while back that I was going to be heading to Rome, and so I, I trusted in him, and he assured me that he was going to keep us all safe. That's God's sovereignty. So based on that, he says, take heart. God will do exactly what he said he would do. But look what it says in verse 26. But we must run aground on some island. Like, what? <laughs> we we got to still be responsible. We have to do what is going to save us. That's just one example. Okay, another one. Verse 30. And as a sailor, sailors, rather, so there were the sailors, you know, uh, managing the boat. Uh, they, were, they were the ones knowledgeable of how to, how to steer, you know, how to control everything and, and, and get the ship going. 
And then there were soldiers on the ship, right? So there are two, two different groups. But the sailors, sailors here were seeking to escape from the ship once they saw an opening, once they saw that they could just escape safely. So they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors. So they're being tricky here. They're being deceptive. But Paul, he saw this and said to the centurion and the soldiers, look, unless these sailors stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. But Paul, I I just thought you said that God's going to keep us all safe, right? No, but see, there's responsibility. So the, the way our Reformed tradition has understood this is to say that God is not only sovereign over the end goals, but also the means through which his goals are accomplished. So unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Okay? And God is sovereign, and he will save us. You've got to hold these two things in tension. You know, as a family, I'm talking to my, my family here, you know, we survived many storms over the past 18 years. And it's because of God's sovereign plan. He ordained all things to be. That is truth. But it's also true that we as a couple, Joyce and I, we survived 18 years together. Oh, my goodness. Because, <laughs> because we, we chose not to give up on each other, even during the most, those really difficult, critical moments. There, there were moments where our marriage was so fragile, and we even talked about the possibility of, you know, maybe, maybe we should consider calling it quits. But we had to be responsible. So God is sovereign, but we also have to be responsible. Both are true. One does not negate the other. And it's only when you begin to hold these two truths together, you're able to become as poised, but also useful as Paul is in this story. Notice how everyone had lost hope. Everyone is basically... They've, they've fallen into despair. They've given up. Some are probably panicking. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to die. Except Paul. Right? Verse 20, verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 20 in this passage. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. See, even the author Luke was probably doubting. He's writing this. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. We're all going to die. See, but Paul knew that God's plan was to get him to Rome. (laughs) And in case there was any doubt, again, God sent an angel to confirm that everyone was going to live. See, and, and though Paul absolutely was sure that that was going to be the case, notice that he did not remain passive. He wasn't thinking... Okay, if God is sovereign, I guess our choices don't matter. No, rather, he became a man of deeper conviction, a man of decisive action, right? 
I mean, he was poised and calm because he believed in a sovereign God, but he wasn't passive because he knew that he was still responsible for his actions. Brothers and sisters, if, if we did not believe in a sovereign God who was in perfect control of our circumstances so that our future depends entirely upon our choices, then, of course, we should all be terrified. I will be the first one panicking, okay? <laughs> I would not have survived COVID with such poise, right? Not that I was always poised. I was frustrated, too. I would have not survived election season, you know, with the calmness if, if I really believed that it was all up to us. But because we hold God's sovereignty and our human responsibility together, we're able to stay calm. But we're also able to be people who can be of service to others. Notice the kind of practical care that Paul is able to offer to these unbelieving, despairing men. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day, it's been two weeks, that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. It's as if they were doing communion. <laughs> they probably didn't, but it was, it was some kind of expression of worship. They prayed, he prayed for them, he prayed over them, he prayed with them. He gave God thanks. It's an act of worship to God. Thank you, God, for delivering us. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. See how useful he was? That's a leader. Okay. People need this kind of leadership. One commentator <clears throat> writes this. Sometimes people say of Christians, these Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. But see, that's getting it backwards. It is the heavenly-minded people who are of earthly use. People who are earthly-minded are of no use when the real storms come, see. Because they're fixated upon their own needs, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? Right? It's like when you believe there's no one else's trust but yourself, and the storm before you is beyond anything you can handle. What else can you do but, but switch to self-preservation mode and simply look after yourself while you're still alive? But where is the honor in that? We're called to have the right posture, the posture of faith. It's also a posture of assuming responsibility. Part three, God's presence in the midst of life's storms. One of the other main reasons you should be able to trust God in the midst of the various storms you face in life is because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. What Jesus essentially did was he rescued us from, shall we say, the mother of all storms, right? The ultimate storm of God's wrath. He willingly suffered through that on our behalf so that we don't have to. Now, Jesus says in Matthew, one who is greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. Right? But what did, what did he mean by that? 
Well, let's, let's think about that for a moment, okay? In Jonah's story, the reason why the men on the boat lived was because Jonah gave himself up to die. See, while the storm was raging, <clears throat> Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive, okay? Because it's really me that God wants, right? not you. If I die, you will live. And then they threw him overboard, right? It's a bit comical, but that's, that's how the story goes. See, but Jesus is the greater Jonah because Jonah was a, a reluctant prophet who fled from God's presence because he hated his enemies and he did not want to obey God's will. He did not want to see these Ninevites be rescued and he deserved to be thrown into the sea. In contrast, Jesus willingly gave up his life for his enemies whom he loved he suffered the sentence of death he did not deserve. And for him, even the thought of being separated from the presence of his father tormented his soul that he sweated blood as he prayed in Gethsemane, preparing for his death. That is a better picture. That's why he's a greater Jonah. So I ask all of you to trust, to trust Jesus in the midst of your storms because he who is the greater Jonah, did not avoid the ultimate storm of judgment, but he himself endured through the storm of hell in order that you and I could live. And the beauty is that if you know that he has done that for you, okay, if you truly believe that that's what he accomplished for you, then you can be assured that he will be present with you in the smaller storms you're called to endure in this life. Amen? Brothers, sisters, no one can promise you that God will take away your storm. Okay? I'll be lying if I said, you know what? You're having a hard time. God will take that away from you. No, I don't know that. He may or may not. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you that as long as you cling to him in the storm, he will deliver you, okay? And he will bring you safely, not to Rome, but to a greater city whose glory will never fade. Isn't that our hope? The greatest storm I experienced in my life is when my father passed away. I was only a freshman in high school. I was basically Caleb's age, right? It's like no wonder I was such an angry teenager. I was such a young Young person, I was so young. You know, when you're a young teenager, having a stable family is one of your greatest securities, as you know. And so once that was taken away from me, I wanted to escape reality and just die like Jonah. Just throw me overboard. I don't care. But it was God who used different events in my life to eventually bring me back to him. Right? He was sovereign over my life. But you know what? I had to also eventually make responsible choices along the way. I had to do what was right as well. One did not negate the other. God was sovereign, but I also had to respond well to the grace God was offering to me. 
So brothers, sisters, if you are in a bad place right now, do not think it's okay for you to simply remain there. It is not okay. Right? It is not okay for your heart to continually be embittered toward God or toward others. Do not remain on the path of disobedience and rebellion if that's where you are. Do not let your heart grow cold and calloused. Don't even think about deconverting like so many people are doing in our day. Do not shipwreck your faith for nothing. Rather, display some courage, brothers and sisters. Display some faith as you look to Jesus, who is present with you in the midst of your storm, and who is meant to be an anchor for your soul. Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and sure that can evermore endure. But let me end with a more well-known hymn written by John Newton, who was a captain of a slave-trading ship before he became a Christian. Be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform with Christ in my vessel. I smile at the storm. Brothers and sisters, would you be a people joining me in smiling at the storm because we have a deep trust in what the Lord is willing to accomplish through it all. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for being the one in control over all things, including all the storms you face in this life, big and small. Help us, Lord, to find comfort in knowing that you are able to bring forth good, even from the evil we experience every day, not only around us, but also within us. We rest in Jesus who suffered through the ultimate storm of your wrath in order to save us and spare us from what our sins deserve. As your people, we desire to possess hearts that are calm and poised, even when violent storms rage against us. So remind us in each storm we face that your presence is always with us and that your purposes for each storm will prevail. May all this be done for the sake of your glory and the joy of your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.